0: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 141st edition of the program. Today is Thursday, May 3rd, and before we get into the news today, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors that signed up just this last week to support us. And that includes Adam Nation, Alexander Beds, Cornelio Maciel Jr., Dahlia Mohammed, Elijah Butler, Eric column General Butt Naked, James, Jeff Key, Jesse Benjamin, Maria Vasilevska, Matthew Grantham, Maurice Howard, Michael Castelli, SS, and Troy Sanders. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the Humanist Report podcast, you can visit humanistreport.com forward slash support or check out patreon.com Forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, we'll talk about how the Democratic Party is still stacking the deck against progressive candidates across the country, and we'll zero in on a race in Colorado between corporate Democrat Jason Crow and progressive Levi Tilleman. Also, the former chief ethics lawyer for the Bush administration is running for the United States Senate as a Democrat. And his campaign is fueled by hatred for Donald Trump. We'll talk about that, and we'll also talk about how MSNBC's Joanne Reid apologized for anti-gay blog posts she claims she never wrote. And getting to foreign policy news, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is trying to bait the United States into war with Iran by using the same exact playbook used by criminals in the Bush administration in 2003. And when it comes to good news with regard to foreign affairs, peace between North and South Korea is finally possible if Donald Trump doesn't fuck it up for us. We'll talk about what could go wrong, but what could also go right. HUD Secretary Ben Carson revealed a plan to make poor people who can't afford housing pay more for rent. And when it comes to net neutrality, it's not actually officially gone yet, contrary to popular belief. I'll tell you why the repeal order stalled. And on the same subject, we'll discuss how Democrats are actually doing the right thing for once, and they're rallying around this issue for this year's midterm elections. And we will talk about Hillary Clinton and why some DNC members and state Democratic Party leaders want her to return the money she's taking from the DNC. And we'll close the episode with an interview with Jordan Sheridan, who's going to talk about Status Coup, a new media organization he is launching. So, that's what we've got on the agenda today. Let's go ahead and get to the news because I'm anxious to talk about all of these topics. Hopefully, you guys will enjoy the show. So, last week, we all witnessed insufferable levels of political grandstanding and virtue signaling when the Democratic Party establishment announced that they'd be suing WikiLeaks, Russia, and the Trump campaign Because, according to DNC Chairman Tom Perez, Preserving our democracy uh, is priceless. And when you have elections that have been attempted, you've seen attempted interference in the past, they're going to do it again. That's what we believe in as Democrats. Elections should be fair. Elections should be fair. (laughs) Now, just days after the Democratic Party proclaimed just how much they care about the Fairness of Elections, The Intercept's Lee Fong, published a video containing a covertly recorded audio conversation between Steny Hoyer, the second highest-ranking Democrat, and progressive candidate Levi Tilleman, who's running to represent the 6th Congressional District of Colorado. And in this audio, you'll hear Steny Hoyer not-so-subtly suggesting that the Democratic Party establishment is not only stacking the deck against Tilleman, but that he would prefer that Tilleman just dropped out altogether. So listen to this and tell me if it sounds like Democrats really believe that elections should be fair.
2: In his farewell address, President Obama told Americans that if they were fed up, they should go out and run for office. If you're disappointed
3: by your elected officials, grab a clipboard, get some signatures, and run for
2: office yourself. And in the Trump era, thousands of Democrats have heeded his call, running for office in elections across the country. Meanwhile, in the race for Congress, the DCCC, or the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, has moved aggressively to crush competitive primaries. DCCC officials and senior Democrats are hand-picking moderate, business-friendly candidates and are attempting to push progressives out of key races. In Colorado's 6th District, one of the most competitive seats in the country, the DCCC moved in early to select Jason Crow, a corporate lawyer, as the party candidate, pushing resources, endorsements, and money to Crow while elbowing out progressive Democratic competitors. The Democratic Party often denies that they play favorites. What follows is a meeting between Congressman Steny Hoyer, the number two Democrat in the House, and Levi Tilleman, a progressive running for the nomination for the Colorado seat.
3: I want to, obviously, I want to talk to you about this congressional race. Absolutely,
4: that's what I expected.
5: Yeah.
4: yeah. You would like me to get out of the race.
3: And you keep get out, and of course that's that's correct.
4: Yeah. 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 I know you're fundraising for Crow. Yeah. You know?
3: I'm for Crow. I am for Crow because the judgment was made very early on and it participate the decision
4: So your position is, a decision was made, you know, very early on before voters had to say, that's fine because that's, the DCCC knows better than the voters of the 6th Congressional District and we should line up behind that candidate.
3: That's certainly the consequence of our decision. There are two things I'd like you to consider. One may be easier, than first would be um, if you stay in the race.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, right now, I would hope you would not. I'll get to that. Get to but if you stay in the race, it is not useful to the objective to tear down
4: the
3: throw. The is clearly the favorite. That doesn't mean you win. It just means it's the favorite. I okay. hear you. That doesn't mean it's right. just means yeah.
4: no, it's I hear you.
3: Right. I don't know Crow well, but I think he's a
4: decent. So before we before we go any further on that, Crow is the favorite, in no small part, Congressman Hoyer, because the D Triple C, not only put its finger on the scale, but started jumping on the scale very early on, and I'm born and raised a Democrat. I mean, it's undemocratic to have a small elite select someone and then try to rig the primary against the other people running and that is that is basically what's been happening.
3: I hear you. And I disagree.
4: But you were part of that process Absolutely. as well.
3: Absolutely. You said after? Ap- yes. Yeah. I've been at this a long time. Yeah. Uh, when I said you need to get in strong, hard, and early, indiscriminately, you know, honestly your choice.
4: And you guys are shoveling money at him.
3: I'm going to continue.
4: You're going to continue to do it?
3: We are going to continue to do it. And the reason why we're going to do it is because a decision was made to focus. It was clear that was our policy and our hope that we could early on try to come to agreement on a candidate that we thought could win the general, mm-hmm. and to give that candidate all the help we could give them so that we would have a unified effort going into a general election.
4: Which, which means, effectively, Congressman Hoyer, I'm running a campaign against Crow and against you and against the DCCC, because you guys are on Crow's side. Yeah,
3: you know, frankly, that happens in life all the time.
0: <laughs> frankly, that happens in life all the time. That was the second highest ranking Democrat admitting that they frequently stack the deck against progressives. Now, this isn't very surprising to people who have been paying attention, but it certainly is interesting to see them just outright admit it. You'd think that they would maybe more subtly suggest or maybe, you know, hint that progressives should get out of the race but here he is saying no i want you to drop out and yes we are stacking the deck against you so if i were levi tilleman in his position and since they just openly admitted that they're not going to play fair that they want to play dirty here's what i would do i'd say look since you guys want to play dirty now i'm gonna play dirty so since i have to run against the d c jason crow and the aggregate democratic party establishment Here's what I'm gonna make Jason Crow do. If he wins the nomination, I'm not gonna get out of the race. I'm gonna stay in now, run as an independent, and make him not only run against a Republican, but run against me. As well. So if you guys want to play dirty, I'm going to play dirty as well and make sure that we definitely split the liberal vote. Because if I'm not going to get a fair shake, then neither is Jason Crow. That's what should happen anytime there's evidence that the Democratic Party establishment is stacking the deck against progressive candidates. If they cut off your access to NGP Van, you should threaten to run as an independent. If they come out and endorse your opponent in a primary and provide that individual with funding, you should threaten to run as an independent and you should follow through. Because if they know that we're just going to roll over and take it and there's not going to be any consequences for their actions, then guess what? They're going to do it again. Now, getting back to Steny Hoyer, what should be the proper response from the Democratic Party? Well, first and foremost, leaders within the Democratic Party, like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, should call on him to resign because clearly this shows that they hold progressive candidates in contempt. They don't like them. They don't want them running. They think that they shouldn't even compete. However, is that the response that we got from members of the Democratic Party? Well, no, because after Stanley Hoyer admitted that they are actively rigging primaries across the country against progressives. Democrats in leadership positions like Nancy Pelosi responded by defending Stanley Hoyer, literally. So, what is it that Nancy Pelosi said? Quote, I don't see anything inappropriate in what Mr. Hoyer was engaged in conversation about, Pelosi told reporters at her weekly news conference. If the realities of life is that some candidates can do better in the general than others, then that's a clear-eyed conversation that we should be having. Wait a second. You guys didn't want to have this conversation in 2016 when Bernie Sanders was polling better than Hillary Clinton in hypothetical matchups against Donald Trump, we pointed this out and you guys told us to be quiet and stop pointing out all of Hillary Clinton's obvious flaws. So now, all of a sudden, electability is at the top of your minds when you didn't seem to care about electability back in 2016? Really? Now, what's funny is that Nancy Pelosi is doing what Democrats did last time when they were caught rigging elections. They're choosing to shoot the messenger rather than address the actual substance of what was revealed. She states, quote, I don't know that a person can tape a person without the person's consent and then release it to the press. That's what I'm more concerned about. But Colorado law doesn't require both parties to consent to a recording. So she's more concerned that Steny Hoyer was busted than she was with what Steny Hoyer was actually doing here to tank the campaign of a progressive. And, of course, she doesn't care because she's doing the same thing. She's the leader of the Democratic Party. So, of course, this is what she's doing. If she wanted to stop it, she could. But she's choosing not to do that because Nancy Pelosi is not a progressive. She is an obstacle to progress. And so long as her and other leaders in the Democratic Party refuse to step down and allow a new generation who is progressive to take over, this will continue to happen. Now, in the same week, a new Reuters-Ipsos poll found out that Democrats actually are continuing to lose support among millennials. Their support overall is down by nine points since 2016. Nine points. Now, before you go blaming us, look in the mirror because this is the exact type of shit That drives millennials out of the party because, look, I'm someone who, as soon as I was old enough to vote, I registered as a Democrat, but I now am a millennial that registered as an independent who loathes the Democratic Party, and it's because of things like this. You refuse to give progressives a fair shake they're not admitting that they rigged the primaries blatantly so against bernie sanders in 2016 and as they still do it they claim that they care so much about democracy which is why they just have to sue wikileaks and russia and the trump campaign they don't care about democracy democrats are undemocratic they should be named the undemocratic party because they don't give a damn about democracy they only care about getting their corporate stooges into power so that way they can continue to do the bidding of their corporate donors. They don't like that progressives across the country are choosing to stand up and run and challenge their power. They don't like that. But you know what? We're going to do it anyway. We know it's going to be difficult and... Trying to crack into the status quo and change the status quo is a very difficult task, but that's not going to stop us from doing it. This audio that was leaked, it's not too surprising. It's not going to demoralize us. It's not going to stop progressives from running across the country. I just wish that progressives would be more direct in confronting Democrats when they do this, threaten to run as an independent. They won't like that. And maybe if you threaten to run as an independent, maybe then they'll actually push for ranked choice voting if they truly care about vote vote spoiling, but really, they don't care about it. They hate the idea of ranked choice voting because then they couldn't use this voter shaming strategy to coerce you to vote for Democrats every election, no matter how much they betray you, no matter how little they represent you. This party is fundamentally broken. This is never going to stop unless progressives actually play dirty themselves and threaten to run as an independent and threaten to split votes in that race. It's never going to stop. You have to fight fire with fire, and that's how you do it. So as you all know by now, over the last weekend, something undoubtedly historic happened. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un crossed the DMZ to shake the hand of South Korean Prime Minister Moon Jae-in, and together, they crossed over into the North. And this is all happening when, just months ago, the prospect of peace seemed like a pipe dream. It seemed impossible. And now, for the first time in a long time, perhaps ever, it really feels like peace on the Korean Peninsula is a real possibility. And what's astounding about this is that Kim Jong-un is saying that he is actually willing to give up nuclear weapons, but there is a catch. So according to Cho Sang-hoon of the New York Times, keeping diplomatic developments coming at a head-snapping pace, the South Korean government said on Sunday that North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un had told President Moon Jae-in that he would abandon his nuclear weapons if the United States agreed to formally end the Korean War and promised not to invade his country. In a confidence-building gesture ahead of a proposed summit meeting with President Trump, a suddenly loquacious and conciliatory Mr. Kim also said he would invite experts and journalists from South Korea and the United States to watch the shutdown next month of his country's only known underground nuclear test site. In Washington, Trump officials spoke cautiously about the chances of reaching a deal and laid out a plan for the Dismantling of the North's nuclear program, perhaps over a two year period. That would be accompanied by a full, complete, and total disclosure of everything related to the nuclear program with a full international verification, said John R. Bolton, Mr. Trump's new national security advisor. So there you have it. We don't necessarily know how this is all going to play out, but certainly. There's reason to be hopeful. Now, other really interesting facts about this meeting is that Kim Jong-un reportedly told President Moon that he's not actually the type of person to shoot nuclear weapons to the South or at the United States, contrary to what he's been threatening us with all these years. And Moon also stated that he's willing to create a diplomatic relationship with Japan again as well. And both men actually signed a pledge for a nuclear-free Korean peninsula. Now, why is this happening? Well, there's a chance that the new round of sanctions that the United States just put on North Korea has forced Kim Jong-un to come to the table. Now, there's also a chance that Kim Jong-un returns to his same bombastic self once these sanctions are eased. There's also a chance that Donald Trump could fuck this entire thing up for us. However, I'm not 100% sure that that is the outcome because Oon's meeting with Mike Pompeo apparently went surprisingly well, and even Donald Trump has expressed optimism about the event and actually wants to meet Oon at the DMZ, even though his advisors have been trying to influence him to meet at a more neutral location, like in Hong Kong, for example. So there's a lot of reasons why things could go right and we can actually secure peace. But with that being said, realistically speaking, there is a number of things that could go wrong. For example, as you all know, Donald Trump does have a lot of warmongers in his administration that don't really want things to go well. So, for example, John Bolton, his national security advisor, has expressed skepticism about peace talks. And additionally, the military-industrial complex is already seeing their profits fall as a result of the mere prospect of peace. Now, as Lucinda Shin of Fortune explains, defense contractors lost a combined $10 billion in value just on Friday after leaders of North and South Korea shook hands. $10 billion. So, obviously, Peace is not in the interest of defense contractors, and we all know that the military-industrial complex will be doing everything in their power to lobby Trump and tank any type of peace agreement that they could come to. So, that's all working against us. There's a lot of reasons why everything could go right, but there's also reasons why we should remain cautiously optimistic. But we also have another thing that I think is working in our favor— and that is Donald Trump's ego.
1: He's been a great help on the border with North Korea, and a lot of good things are happening there. A lot of good things. I'm not going to give you what's going to actually happen because we don't really know, but I'll tell you one thing: we're not playing games. And I remember, you know, it was very rough three, four months ago. No. <laughs> That's very nice, thank you. That's very nice. No bell. <laughs> I just want to get the job done. So, if we would have. So, we're going to have hopefully a very successful negotiation over the next three or four weeks. And uh, we'll be doing the world a big favor. We'll be doing the world a big favor. Let's see how it goes. I think we'll do fine. I think we're going to do just fine. One of the fake news groups this morning. Now, they were saying, what do you think uh, President Trump had to do with it? I'll tell you what. Like, how about everything?
0: Now, I never thought I would say that Donald Trump's ego would actually work in our favor, but that crowd was chanting Nobel, implying that Donald Trump should get a Nobel Peace Prize if he's able to somehow secure peace with North Korea. Now, the South Korean president is even crediting Donald Trump by suggesting that he should receive a Nobel Peace Prize for basically assuring peace is a possibility at all. Now, it's very likely that Moon Jae-in could be praising Donald Trump because he does want peace and knows that if he wants the United States to do what he wants, he has to play to Donald Trump's ego. And quite frankly, I think that if we want peace as well, we do have to play to Donald Trump's ego. Let him think that he's getting everything done, even if that's not true. Because even Dennis Rodman came out and said, look, it's really me who brought Kim Jong-un to the table and influenced him to talk to the South. But we need to allow Donald Trump to think he's doing everything so he is encouraged to actually get peace so he believes he'll be rewarded for it. Look, I don't give a flying fuck if Donald Trump gets a Nobel Peace Prize. They could give him an Oscar, an Emmy, a fucking Grammy. They could literally award him with an Olympic gold medal for figure skating and I wouldn't care. If playing to his ego gets us peace, let's do what gets us peace. Because Donald Trump, I feel as though The chances of him fucking this up for us increase exponentially if he doesn't feel as though there's going to be any personal rewards to be reaped from this. So if he doesn't think that he's going to get credit or if his ego will be stroked, I think that he'd care less about this. But since he sees an opportunity to really boost his image among a population that hates him, really a world population at this point that hates him, then he's going to pursue this. So let him... Let him take credit for it. I don't care. What I care about is peace. And there are a lot of Democratic Party hacks that claim to be against war but are shitting all over the prospect of peace. But look, the prospect of peace with North Korea is something that is inherently good in and of itself. It's not only good if a Democratic president is able to achieve peace within Korea. If Trump is able to get this done, then he can and should receive credit for it. Because what matters is peace. I don't care who achieves it or how it's achieved, but we need to get there. That's what we want. The outcome is what matters. So, yes, that means that some liberals are going to have to begrudgingly give Donald Trump credit, perhaps, for this, if we do find out that he really is the one that influenced Kim Jong-un to come to the table. That's just a fact of reality. We can't be hacks. Now, I don't believe that this will clean Trump's hands when it comes to the war crimes he's already committed in Syria and Yemen. But certainly, I mean, this is a move that should be applauded. Now, the overall takeaway is that we should remain cautiously optimistic. And for anyone who's trying to shit on this and, you know, they're they're scoffing at the idea of peace because it's Donald Trump who's trying to initiate it. I mean, shame on you. If you care about peace, if you care about Korea being unified or at least not being openly hostile towards one another, or certainly the North being hostile towards the South, then we should encourage Donald Trump. I think that positive reinforcement is what matters here. And if he wants to take credit, again, I don't care. What I care about is peace. So to people shitting on this, shame on you. Stop being a hack. I want to show you a 16-second clip that essentially highlights how the United States government duped us into a war with Iraq by lying to us about them having weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein and his regime will stop at nothing until
3: something stops him.
5: Powell argued Iraq is deceiving the weapons inspectors.
6: This was a typical American show, complete with stunts and special effects.
0: Now, it turns out that Iraq was right and we were wrong. And just a couple of years later, the Bush administration was laughing off the fact that after invading Iraq, well, it turns out Saddam Hussein didn't actually have WMDs after all. Those weapons of mass destruction gotta be somewhere.
3: (laughs) Nope, no weapons over there. be under here
0: (laughs) now the question is what's the point of me rehashing this and showing you these old clips well these old clips are important because those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it now as president donald trump considers tearing up the iran deal which was a peace agreement that prevented iran from getting wmds Warmongers, who beat the drums against Iraq then, are now beating the drums again, this time against Iran. And surprise, surprise, they're using the same exact playbook that officials from the Bush administration used in 2003. Now, I want to reiterate here that contrary to popular belief, the Iran nuclear deal actually does prevent Iran from obtaining weapons of mass destruction and we're able to verify that they are in compliance with the agreement since one of the stipulations of the deal was that Iran would allow the International Atomic Energy Agency to access its nuclear facilities regularly in order to ensure that they're actually not building a bomb. Now, the reason why warmongers don't like the Iran nuclear deal is that it undermines one of their main justifications for wanting to invade Iran. They can't get a WMD, and if Iran can't get a WMD, well then, what reason do we have to invade Iran? But that doesn't stop warmongers and war criminals from rehashing these same tired tactics that we saw back in 2003. And since now, this deal guarantees that Iran can't get a bomb, what are they doing? Well, they're just basically telling us anyway that Iran does want to get a nuclear bomb. Case in point.
6: Tonight, we are going to reveal new and conclusive proof of the secret nuclear weapons program that Iran has been hiding for years from the international community in its secret atomic archive. We're going to show you Iran's secret nuclear files. You may well know that Iran's leaders repeatedly deny ever-pursuing nuclear weapons. Iran lied. Big time. After signing the nuclear deal in uh, 2015, Iran intensified its efforts to hide its secret nuclear files. In 2017, Iran moved its nuclear weapons files to a highly secret location in Tehran. This is the Shorabad district in southern Tehran. This is where they kept the atomic archives, right here. Few Iranians knew where it was, very few, and also a few Israelis. Now, from the outside, this was an innocent-looking compound. It looks like a dilapidated warehouse. But from the inside, it contained Iran's secret atomic archives, locked in massive files. Actually, they're a little bigger than this, okay? A few weeks ago, in a great intelligence achievement, Israel obtained half a ton of the material inside these vaults. And here's what we got. 55,000 pages. Another 55,000 files on 183 CDs. Everything you're about to see is an exact copy of the original Iranian material. You may want to know where are the originals. Well, I can say they're now in a very safe place. Here's what the files included. Incriminating documents, incriminating charts, incriminating presentations, incriminating blueprints, incriminating photos, incriminating videos, and more. We've shared this material with the United States, and the United States can vouch for its authenticity.
0: Now, as that criminal stood there and told you that Iran was covertly building a WMD... Did that remind you of anything? Certainly when I watched that, it seemed as if he was using the exact playbook war criminals from Bush's administration used in 2003. Exactly. So what Benjamin Netanyahu is trying to do here is potentially bait us into a war with Iran in the same way that Bush's administration baited Americans and duped Americans into believing that war with Iraq was justified because they had weapons of mass destruction. And... You won't be surprised that Netanyahu is one of the many individuals that beat the war drums against Iraq back in 2003 as well. This is what he had to say.
6: If you take out Saddam, Saddam's regime, I guarantee you that it will have enormous positive reverberations on the region. And I think that people sitting right next door in Iran, young people, uh, and many others will say the time of such regimes, of such just is gone. There was a new age. Something new was happening.
0: How'd that work out for everyone again? So you see what's happening here. This is a warmonger and a war criminal who beat the war drums against Iraq, and now he's doing the same thing again against Iran because he knows that this will work. All that Bush had to do was tell us that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and Americans believe, well, you know what? I guess that is grounds for um, invasion and justifies us preemptively invading them. So Netanyahu sees that and thinks, well, that's an easy way to get the United States to get on our side. And see, this entire debacle is frustrating to me because rather than rotting in prison right now for war crimes that he has repeatedly carried out against the Palestinian people, this war criminal is trying to bait us— into invading another country that didn't attack us, that poses no threat to the United States whatsoever. Now, let's be extra kind to Netanyahu here and assume that he's correct. Let's assume that this evidence is credible and Iran actually is building a nuclear bomb. Does that still give us adequate justification to invade them? Of course it doesn't, because even if I personally think that the proliferation of nuclear weapons poses an existential threat to humanity and nobody should have them, including us, well, even if Iran did get a bomb, of course, they wouldn't just automatically use it as soon as it's crafted, they would use it as a deterrent against American aggression. And if you're asking me whether or not I believe Iranian leaders over Netanyahu and the United States... When they tell us that they don't want a WMD, I do. Because ask yourself this, how about having a nuke server Iran if they know one... That they'd likely get caught while they're trying to build it since the IAEA could find out about it at any time and sound the alarm. And two, they'd essentially guarantee that the US would invade them if they found out about said bomb. It's just too risky. So I believe them when they say that they don't want a nuclear weapon because that is the logical response for self interested state actors who don't want to be overthrown. They'd essentially guarantee a ground invasion by the United States if the IAEA found out that they were building a bomb. So why would they do it? What incentive do they have to do that? It flies in the face of reason, which is why I believe Iran over someone like Netanyahu, who is a warmonger and war criminal who will stop at nothing to make sure that U.S. imperialism continues because U.S. imperialism also happens to benefit Israel as well. Our interests line up with Israel's interests, so of course he wants us to do his dirty work. The only time we should resort to using the military for anything is for self-defense. Other than that, war is never justifiable. Richard Painter is an individual who served as the chief ethics lawyer for the George W. Bush administration. Now, just let that sink in for a moment. He served as the ethics lawyer for one of the most unethical administrations in the history of the United States. So now this individual has basically become a member of the resistance. He frequently speaks out against Donald Trump and a lot of Democrats like what he's saying. And again, even though he came from George Bush's war criminal administration, Democrats like him because he's saying mean things about Donald Trump. Well, now he recently announced that he'd be running for the United States Senate and he is trying to take over Al Franken's old seat. But he's not running as a Republican. In fact, He's now running as a Democrat, and he's primarily running on an anti-Trump platform. But he claims, at least, that there are policy issues he cares about, too.
5: I'm against what President Trump is doing and what his collaborators are doing. It's not just about President Trump. It's about what's been going on in the Republican Party for decades. You have this religious right that's, that, that is willing to put our democracy at risk to accomplish their agenda. Uh, and that's been, that was a problem before President Trump. So there's a lot that I'm against and I'm worried about in this country. But I'm for America. I want to protect our natural resources. I believe we need to extend health care to every single American and health insurance to every single American. We need to regulate the banking sector. Now, I'm not
3: against banks.
2: Richard Painter is a corporate law professor at the University of Minnesota. He lives in Mendota Heights with his wife and children. He will be seeking the seat that Democratic Senator Tina Smith now holds. Painter says he would like to debate the issues with Senator Smith on the Internet, which he says won't cost a lot of money.
0: Now, one interesting fact about him is that he is claiming to be concerned about the impact money has on politics, so he's choosing to not take corporate PAC money. And he also will be releasing a full platform shortly. But let's just, you know, in spite of all that, let's call a spade a spade. This is nothing more than a political opportunistic individual who is running a campaign based solely on sanctimonious bullshit. I mean, he is the former chief ethics lawyer for the Bush administration. George W. Bush is a murderous war criminal whose policies ruined the Fourth Amendment. He literally carried out torture, which is an actual war crime. He claimed his decision-making was guided by his God, and Richard Painter is claiming that evangelicals, they're just ruining the country to, you know, uh, follow through with their agenda. But for some reason, Richard Painter didn't draw the line at George W. Bush, a murderous war criminal. However, he's choosing now to suddenly draw the line at Donald Trump. That's what made you see just how flawed the Republican Party is, really, Donald Trump? I got bad news for you, Richard, but it wasn't Donald Trump who broke the Republican Party. The Republican Party was already fundamentally broken. They are a tyrannical, extremist, far-right party, and they attracted an individual like Donald Trump, a demagogue. That's what they did. Now, to be fair, Richard Painter didn't actually join the Bush administration until 2005 after he had already invaded Iraq, and he stayed until 2007, but that doesn't really exonerate him because he decided to join Bush's criminal administration after he already knew that Bush had invaded a country that didn't attack us. Invaded two countries that didn't attack us, to be clear. So, <laughs> I don't know how the Democratic Party establishment is going to respond to an individual like Richard Painter, who served as the ethics lawyer for Bush's administration. It's That's an oxymoron right there. That's like going to your local butcher for issues regarding veganism. That's like asking Donald Trump for advice on how to be more humble. I mean, it, it, it it's inherently contradictory. Bush's administration, they were one of the most morally bankrupt administrations that our country has ever seen. And yet now you're trying to claim that Donald Trump was really what made you, you know, just leave the Republican Party once and for all. Give me a break. Again, this is a political opportunist who is virtue signaling because he has his own self-interested agenda. He wants to get elected, and he realizes that there's this anti-Trump hysteria in the country, and that there may be this blue wave come November, so he wants to capitalize on that for his own personal gain. But understand what this is. This is political opportunism, and that's that. That's it. Former ethics Bush lawyer is now going to scold Trump and everyone else in the country about what the Republican Party should stand for. You're late to the party, bud, and I just hope that the Democratic Party um, sees through it, but, you know, part of me is worried that they're going to welcome him with open arms and maybe even rig the primary against (laughs) his opponent, knowing them, because they love centrists, so um, we'll see how this goes, but this is an individual who is not an honest actor and really should be... An outcast, politically. Nobody should care what he has to say. Anyone from Bush's administration should be permanently discredited. But unfortunately, we we love Bush again. We're all welcoming Bush back because Donald Trump is so much worse. Well, you could think that, and this is what happens when you try to rehabilitate war criminals like George W. Bush. Their cronies come out of hiding and think they have a chance in politics again when they shouldn't ever enter politics ever again. So by now, it's no secret or surprise to anyone that Donald Trump and the Republican Party are openly waging a war on the poor, not just by cutting funding to crucial social safety net programs that the poor rely on, but by imposing harsh requirements on beneficiaries of said programs. Now, this last week, HUD Secretary Ben Carson unveiled a new plan to fuck over the poorest Americans in the country when it comes to rent, so according to Politico's Katie O'Donnell, HUD Secretary Ben Carson on Wednesday unveiled a major overhaul of the rental housing system, proposing to increase the share of rent that low-income households must pay before receiving assistance and allow public housing authorities to impose work requirements. The proposal to reshape the way HUD helps 4.5 million people meet their rent is part of a broader Trump administration push to link anti-poverty programs to employment. Carson, who often refers to his own up-from-nothing life story as a parable for the poor and said last year that poverty is a state of mind, has long called on HUD to focus on helping people get off assistance rather than expanding the benefits it provides. The current system, Carson said on a conference call with reporters, creates perverse incentives including discouraging these families from earning more income and becoming self-sufficient. Rental assistance recipients currently spend about 30% of their adjusted income on housing, with subsidies picking up the rest. Under the proposal HUD is sending to Congress, recipients would have to contribute 35% of their gross income or 35% of their income from working 15 hours a week at the federal minimum wage. Public housing agencies and owners, in the case of project-based assistance, would be able to establish minimum work requirements for recipients, excluding people over the age of 65 and the disabled. Under the proposal, some of the poorest tenants would see their rents triple. Every non-elderly non-disabled household would have to pay a minimum of $150 a month in rent Right now, the minimum amount for Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program and the public housing is $50. One of the reasons the administration has given for overhauling the assistance is that as rental costs continue to rise, more and more of HUD's budget is eaten up helping the same number of families. So really, what this comes down to is two things. First and foremost, they think that poor people really, you know, they should just learn to paddle their own canoe. If you're poor, just stop being poor. It's that simple. So, if you don't like that we are reducing benefits, then you could do something about it. You could just stop being poor. Why haven't you stopped being poor yet, poor people? Now, second of all, the claim here is that, you know, HUD just doesn't have the money. We don't have the budget needed to pay for everyone's rent as the cost of rent continues to increase. So, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that. Now, could we theoretically reappropriate funds from our bloated military budget? No, we can't do that because, you see, when it comes to spending in the United States, we're not supposed to be using the tax dollars that you give to us to help people. That money is meant to kill people in the Middle East and North Africa. I mean, that's that's really what this is about. That's what they're saying. Because they don't want to help poor people. And what I find really interesting about Ben Carson's claim here that, you know, as the cost of rent increases, it's getting more taxing, so to speak, on the... HUD budget to, you know, continue paying, is that he actually slashed the public housing budget just last year. So, this is how he's responding to a crisis he created. Since the agency now no longer has the money to help people anymore as a direct result of him slashing its budget, well, they're going to have to reduce benefits and impose new requirements with regard to eligibility in order to accommodate their new slimmer budget. I mean, this is Republicanism 101. You create a crisis... And then you solve that crisis by fucking over people and accomplishing what you wanted to do in the first place. It's incredibly disingenuous. Rather than just saying, we don't want to cover poor people, his excuse is that, well, you know, we can't cover everyone. No, that's not true. And really, I mean, he's not not really saying this in a veiled way. He said that these types of social safety net programs create perverse incentives for poor people to just never get off of welfare. Is he saying the same thing about the oil and gas industry who's currently on welfare? Is he saying the same thing about Walmart, whose CEO makes more than a thousand times than the lowest employee? Walmart employees have to be on welfare because they work, but they're not paid a living wage. They still can't support themselves? Is he saying that our system of corporate welfare creates perverse incentives for these large multinational corporations to continue to take advantage of the American government and the American worker? Of course not. It's always the poor who are the ones who are evil and have to be punished when you live in a capitalistic society because, quite frankly, their lives don't matter. Ben Carson doesn't care about the lives of poor people. That's why Trump chose him for that position. Now, this announcement comes just months after the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau found that one-third of American households can't afford food, shelter, or medical care. Now, you can try to chalk this up to a lack of personal responsibility, but the reality of the situation is that we live in an amoral, capitalistic society where profits are always prioritized over the lives of citizens, and workers in America have and always will be exploited at the behest of large multinational corporations. And let me ask Ben Carson this personally. Ben, I thought you said that you were a Christian. Remind me again which passage in the Bible Jesus talked about fucking over the poor. Was it Deuteronomy? Was it Matthew? Where did Jesus say, thou shalt fuck over the poor and rob them of benefits that they rely on? Show me the verse in the Bible where it says that, Ben. I am so tired of these hypocritical Christians, so-called Christian Republicans, who love to cherry-pick their religion, but they don't want to focus on the part where Jesus said you should help out the poor. Why is that? It's not because you're a greedy, oligarchic, capitalist pig, are you? Of course not. It's because these programs create, quote, incentives for people to stay on the program. Again, I've said this before when I've talked about this, but there is no such thing as an incentive to stay on the program if you're poor. If you're poor, you want to get off of welfare because if you're getting off of welfare, then that means you're making more money and you could support yourself and buy more things that you like. So who in their right mind would want to remain poor, poor enough to remain on welfare? Nobody. When I was on welfare and food stamps, all I could think about was getting off of it one day and making enough money to support myself. Why would anyone in their right minds think, you know what, I think I just want to remain poor so I can continue to leech out the government. I mean, these are people who are working, who receive welfare benefits. Their tax dollars are literally funding our social safety net program, and yet you're claiming that they're leeching up the government. No, you want to know who's leeching up the fucking government? It's multinational corporations and billionaires who the Republican Party just gave trillions of dollars in tax cuts to. Now, over the next 10 years, if you make less than $75,000 per year, you're going to see your taxes go up. And guess what's going to happen as a direct result of this tax increase on the working class? They're going to need even more benefits from welfare. So, I mean, you can't complain about something that you're perpetuating. You are perpetuating poverty. The Republican Party's policies result in poverty, and they don't care. They want to kick poor people when they're already down. Shame on this disgusting morally bankrupt party who continues to virtue signal about how they love Jesus. You don't love Jesus at all. This is a big fuck you to Jesus if you're a Republican and you support this. On April 23rd, I released a video to this channel talking about how the FCC's repeal of Title II net neutrality protections had partially went into effect as of that day. And a lot of media outlets also reported the same thing, because that was the day the repeal of net neutrality was supposed to take effect. However, contrary to popular belief, net neutrality is still... Here, it's not dead just yet, and it's because for some reason the FCC is now choosing to stall the official release of its repeal. Now, as Carl Bode of Vice explains, while numerous news outlets claimed net neutrality officially died this week, that's not technically true. Before net neutrality rules can truly be scrubbed from the book's The repeal needs to not only be posted to the Federal Register, but the U.S. Office of Management and Budget needs to sign off on the flimsy replacement protections proposed by the FCC. But Consumer Advocates this week pointed out that the FCC appears to be intentionally delaying the final repeal via intentional bureaucratic gridlock. Harold Feld, one of the foremost authorities on FCC and telecom policy, wrote a blog post this week noting that the delay is particularly unusual for an FCC that falsely proclaimed that the rules had a massive negative impact on ISP's ability to invest in broadband networks. This is to say the least, highly unusual, Feld observed. There's absolutely no reason for FCC Chairman Ajit Pai to have stretched out this process so ridiculously long. It is especially puzzling in light of Pai's insistence that he had to rush through the repeal of net neutrality over the objections of just about everyone but the ISPs and their cheerleaders. So why is the Trump FCC stalling on formally killing rules it professes were devastating to the telecom sector? The most popular theory is that i ISPs and the FCC wanted more time to garner support for their effort to pass a bogus net neutrality law, a law they promised will solve the net neutrality feud once and for all, but whose real intention is to preempt tougher state laws and block the FCC's 2015 rules from being restored in the wake of a possible court loss. While it may seem like ISPs scored a major victory with last December's vote at the FCC, that's simply not the case. Given the FCC's bizarre behavior during the repeal, ranging from ignoring comment fraud and identity theft during the public comment period to making up a DDoS attack, the repeal remains on some shaky legal ground, courtesy of FCC ethical gaffes. In addition to their looming legal challenge, ISPs are worried that more than half the states in the country are now pursuing their own net neutrality laws. And while ISPs successfully lobbied the FCC to include language in their repeal, trying to ban states from protecting consumers, their legal authority on that front is dubious as well. So make no mistake about it, it's not like Ajit Pai is delaying the repeal of net neutrality because he suddenly had a change of heart and sees what we've been trying to tell him all along. That's not what this is. He's doing this at the behest of ISPs who want more time to not only lobby Congress, but lobby state governments who are planning their own net neutrality rules as well. Isn't that interesting? Because they know that the FCC's preemption of states, basically blocking states from doing their own net neutrality rules, that is something that, as the article states, is legally dubious. I mean, does the FCC have the authority to preempt states? That's yet to be seen. So, what the FCC is doing on behalf of ISPs is blocking this so ISPs can maybe persuade state governments to not actually follow through with their own net neutrality laws because they know that maybe those laws would stick. So, the question now is, when is the repeal of net neutrality officially going to go into effect? We don't know. (laughs) That's yet to be seen. So, I mean, certainly this is good news, but for all the wrong reasons. It's... (laughs) It's being delayed so we can get fucked over even more. So, I mean, everything that Ajit Pai does is at the behest of ISPs. Now, this goes without saying, of course, we don't know Ajit Pai's true intent here. That's just what um, Feld was speculating. However, he is someone with a lot of credibility when it comes to the FCC and telecom policy. So if he says that this is done at the behest of ISPs, then I'm inclined to believe him. So certainly net neutrality is still a thing. The net is still technically neutral. Um, But it's only because ISPs are trying to set themselves up for longevity with this repeal. They want to make sure that they don't have to fight this fight every time we get a new president who appoints a new FCC chair. They want to make sure that this is the last time they ever have to deal with lobbying the FCC and Congress to repeal net neutrality. But unfortunately for them, it's not. Net neutrality is going to be something that we will always fight for because it's something that's necessary. The internet should remain free and open. And that's something that we just will always care about. We're just not going to suddenly think that, you know, maybe net neutrality isn't that important. So this is all shady. I mean, it's so frustrating that Even good news with regard to net neutrality really is just news that's really better for ISPs who are gearing up to screw us over. It's frustrating, but look, we have to be cognizant of what they're doing and hypersensitive to any changes we see coming down from the FCC. So, certainly, watch what your state government is doing because chances are, if there's a net neutrality bill that's already been proposed and introduced, There are big telecom companies lobbying against it, so make sure you call your state lawmaker and let him or her know you support this, and you want not only net neutrality, but public broadband while you're at it. So, you all know, I rarely give Democrats credit for anything, because... Usually, they don't deserve it. In fact, typically, they deserve to be chastised because what they tend to do is shun what voters want in order to do the bidding of their corporate donors. But every once in a while, they'll actually surprise us and do the right thing. And they've done that recently when it comes to the issue of net neutrality. So according to Politico's John Hendel, Senate Democrats are preparing to force a floor vote next month on restoring net neutrality rules repealed by President Donald Trump's Federal Communications Commission, creating a public clash they hope will help them in the midterm elections. Democrats are planning to take the procedural step May 9th to compel the vote, a Senate Democratic aide told Politico. That could set up the vote as soon as the following week. Senate Democrats have 50 votes lined up, more than enough to force a vote under the Congressional Review Act, but one shy of the 51 required for passage. Senator Susan Collins of Maine is the only Republican to have pledged support for the effort so far. Even with Senate passage, Democrats' proposal would be unlikely to get through the House or earn trump's signature but their plans for a floor fight would still add visibility to an issue that senate minority leader chuck schumer has suggested will resonate with younger internet savvy voters we're in the home stretch in the fight to save net neutrality schumer said in a statement soon the american people will know which side their member of congress is on fighting for big corporations and isps or defending small business owners entrepreneurs middle class families and everyday consumers democrats on pro net neutrality groups have been searching for the elusive 51st vote for weeks, putting a special focus on Senator John Kennedy, who has said he's undecided on the issue. We're only one vote away from securing a victory in the Senate, Senator Ed Markey, who introduced the resolution to undo the FCC repeal, told reporters Thursday, Momentum continues to build in every corner of the country. Democrats are planning another net neutrality day of action to support on May 9th, the Senate aide said. So this is the exact kind of thing that they should be doing. They're choosing to champion a policy that the overwhelming majority of the American electorate cares about. Even Republicans, the overwhelming majority of Republicans actually support net neutrality and the small margin of voters who don't support net neutrality i would argue probably don't know what net neutrality is how it affects them and why it's important because there's been a lot of propaganda that the isps have tried to shove down our throats with regard to this issue and the mainstream media hasn't done a good job at all in fact they've done an atrocious job when it comes to the issue of net neutrality and that's when they haven't just ignored it altogether. But in spite of that, most people support net neutrality. So by doing this, not only is this the moral and right thing to do, but it is the politically astute thing to do. Now, let's be honest here some Democrats have zero credibility at all when it comes to this issue, because individuals like Claire McCaskill and Joe Manchin, what did they do recently? They literally voted to reconfirm Ajit Pai as chair of the FCC, knowing damn well what he would do as soon as he took that seat. But they voted for him anyway. So, make no mistake about it, they're not doing this for altruistic reasons, but quite frankly, I honestly don't care what their reasoning is for supporting net neutrality. Now, in fact, I think that the Democratic Party is clearly trying to gin up support for the party ahead of this year's midterms, but they're doing it by elevating an issue that we care deeply about. So, you can call this political opportunism, you can call it political posturing, I don't care. What I care about is securing policies that are important. To us. And net neutrality is at the forefront of a lot of our minds. It's one of the most important issues facing the American people. So I don't care how we get net neutrality. What I care about is just getting the policies that we want. So if Democrats are trying to do this because it's a political move, I I personally just don't care. I don't. And I'm someone who has stated time and again that I do believe in positive reinforcement. So when politicians do the right thing every once in a while, I do think it's important that we reward them by praising them. Now, net neutrality is one of those issues. You can argue that it's just such a no-brainer that they shouldn't even have to be praised. But really, I mean, we have to understand that the bar is very, very low. It's down here. You can't even see it. The bar is so low. So anytime they do something just remotely beneficial to Americans, we have to come out and praise them so they are encouraged to do it again. So I don't know what possessed Chuck Schumer to actually do the right thing here, but this is important. More of this, Democrats, less of you rigging primaries, less of you pushing for incrementalism and policies that your corporate donors want, more of this because this is how you win back voters. You're not going to win back everyone. But you can win back enough voters to actually gain power again. So, I wanted to get to the ongoing debacle involving MSNBC host Joanne Reed because, as you all know, a few months ago there were these blog posts from her old blog, The Reed Report, that people discovered that were pretty homophobic. And once these came out, she apologized for it and said that, you know, her position on LGBT rights evolved and she's sorry for it. So, there were more blog posts that came out in the last couple of weeks that showed that she said even more homophobic things. And since she already apologized for this blog... I thought that she probably would have just come out and apologize again and say, look, I I understand that these are all really problematic things that I once said, but I no longer hold those feelings and, you know, um, I hope you guys can forgive me. However, this time, after already admitting that she had written homophobic things previously, she decided to deny that she wrote these things, which is weird. And her excuse was that she was hacked. So what she's alleging is that somebody not only hacked into her blog, but decided to emulate her writing style, her witty writing style, in order to write homophobic things that she never said, in hopes that one day someone would discover this and um, destroy her career from it. I mean, it makes no sense. It's obviously a lie. So... (laughs) She's maintaining, however, that she was hacked and that she never wrote them. So she came out, she apologized last week, and she tried to change the conversation. And I'll tell you why her apology is problematic.
5: A community that I support and that I deeply care about is hurting because of some despicable and truly offensive posts being attributed to me. Now, many of you have seen these blog posts circulating online and in social media. Many of them are homophobic, discriminatory, and outright weird and hateful. When a friend found them in December and sent them to me, I was stunned. Frankly, I couldn't imagine where they'd come from or whose voice that was. In the months since, I've spent a lot of time trying to make sense of these posts. I hired cybersecurity experts to see if somebody had manipulated my words or my former blog. And the reality is they have not been able to prove it. But here's what I know. I genuinely do not believe I wrote those hateful things because they are completely alien to me. But I can definitely understand based on things I have tweeted and have written in the past why some people don't believe me. I've not been exempt from being dumb or cruel or hurtful to the very people I want to advocate for. I own that, I get it. And for that I am truly, truly sorry. I had a conversation the other day with a friend who's also an advocate in the LGBTQ community in Florida, who rightly took me to task for my tweets mocking Ann Coulter using transgender stereotypes. I apologize to my friend and I want to apologize to the trans community and to Ann. Those tweets were wrong and horrible. I look back today at some of the ways I've talked casually about people and gender identity and sexual orientation and I wonder who that even was. But the reality is that, like a lot of people in this country, that person was me. I grew up in a household that, like many in America, had conservative views on LGBTQ issues. I had friends, some of my closest friends, in fact, growing up, who I later learned were gay and who had kept it secret from me and from everyone else we were close to because they didn't know what we would say or if we would still be friends or whether we would look at them differently. I can remember a friend of mine my freshman year in college telling me he was gay and my knee-jerk reaction being that it was so disappointing to the women he could have married. He was so hurt he didn't speak to me for months. I'm heartbroken that I didn't do better back then, knowing so many great people in the LGBTQ community, including amazing friends and journalists and producers and political operatives and great dads and moms and advocates and just regular people. And knowing how hard it must have been for so many of them to come out to their families, to their friends, to just walk around in the world, especially for trans people. And I feel like I should have known better than to ever write or tweet in a way that could make fun of or make light of or make light of that pain and that experience. Even a decade ago when the country was in a very different place. But I cannot take any of that back. I can only say that the person I am now is not the person I was then.
0: Okay, so as you can see there, she didn't really address what we were all really concerned about, which was why she decided to lie about being hacked. It was obvious that she wasn't hacked and that she said those things. But again, she gets a total pass for being homophobic before i'm a gay person i deal with familial and societal homophobia pretty frequently but i think that when people come out and they evolve when they change their opinion on lgbt rights that's not something that is a bad thing it's certainly a good thing so what incentive do we have to shit on people who have come around and who are now allies, we don't. And clearly, I don't think that Joanne Reed harbors those same feelings. I trust her. I trust that she's an ally who genuinely wants to do right by the LGBT community. So the fact that she focused on this, it shows that she's trying to change the discussion. She's trying to prove to us that she's not homophobic, when really what we want answers to is why she decided to lie about it. Because I would have never referred to Joanne Reed as a liar up until this point. A disingenuous smear merchant? Yes. Uh, A Democratic Party political hack? Yes. Someone who hates progressives? Yes. A liar? Not necessarily. Typically, what she tends to do is obscure details. Um, You know, she would omit facts about progressives. Uh, Just last week, I covered a segment about how she profiled 2020 presidential contenders but left out Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, I I don't think that there's any evidence that she just outright lied to viewers up until this point because clearly she is lying and that calls her integrity completely into question because if she's willing to just lie so flippantly about something that we all know is not true then what else is she willing to lie about? Now, these old blog posts that were unearthed using the Wayback Machine, which takes screenshots of older websites and catalogs them, well, the reason why her hacking claim specifically doesn't hold up at all is because, as CNN's Tom Clutt explains, Reed's claim rests on the idea that a hacker was tampering with her blog not years after the fact, but contemporaneously, sometimes within days or even hours of the events that were the subject of the posts and that she never noticed so it's not possible that she was hacked and i don't even believe that she's experiencing cognitive dissonance that she can't believe that she'd ever say something so horrible about gay people i don't even believe that i think she knows she's lying but she's choosing to do it anyway i'm just surprised personally that she didn't choose to blame the russians it seems like something she would do so joy you get a pass for homophobia you've changed you don't have to prove to us that you're no longer homophobic. Nobody believes that. I I think, Actually, I don't think I've seen anyone who still contends that Joanne Reed is homophobic or still harbors those feelings towards gay people. Nobody believes that. But what we are concerned about is the fact that you chose to lie about it after you already fucking admitted that you wrote homophobic things just a few months ago. Why would you choose to lie about that? It makes no sense. This doesn't add up, and it's such an odd story because... If you've already owned up to something, why would you not own up to it again, knowing the response last time? I mean, when those homophobic blog posts came out, she owned up to it and apologized, and pretty much that was that. I didn't even talk about it on my program. Because, yeah, people change, and that's something we celebrate. We don't shit on them if they had views that they no longer have and changed. I mean, that, that's just counterproductive. So, I, I, it boggles my fucking mind that she would choose to lie about this. So, I mean, of course, this calls her credibility into question. And then you have people at MSNBC like Rachel Maddow come out saying, I've never been more proud to be an associate of Joanne Reid or something along those lines. It's just really, you've never been more proud after she exposed herself as a liar for the dumbest reason ever. Again, Joy, you didn't have to lie about this. We already forgave you the last time, so why wouldn't we forgive you a second time? And yes, it is the case, to be fair, that what was discovered this time, I mean, the posts she made were a lot more homophobic, but again, I don't care. I don't give any fucks whatsoever about the things she said because I know she no longer feels that way. I have no doubt in my mind that Joy Reed is an ally to the LGBT community. To progressives, no, but to the LGBT community, yes. So I just, I... I I don't understand why she would lie and basically force us to think about whether or not she's willing to lie about other things. I mean, this calls her credibility into question, and it's something that you don't want to do as a journalist. I mean, you're supposed to cultivate trust among your viewership, and here you are lying about something that's obvious. We all know you're lying. I, I haven't seen a single person, even neoliberals who support Joanne Reed, who are friends with Joanne Reid, who thinks she's telling the truth about this, so why not just tell the truth about this? It's like me lying and saying that I have 11 fingers instead of 10. Well, why would I lie about that when you can easily prove that I only have 10? Why would I still insist that I have 11 fingers if you can see that I have 10? I mean, it's easily disprovable, so why lie about something like that? It makes no sense to me, but um, certainly, if Joanne Reed is willing to lie about this, then she is willing to lie about other things. Now, again, I never thought she was a liar. I always thought she was a disingenuous Democratic Party hack and smear merchant, but now, certainly, if she's willing to lie about something so idiotic, then she's willing to lie at the behest of the Democratic Party establishment. So that's something you have to keep in mind if you watch Joanne Reed. In fact, if I was... A regular viewer and fan of Joanne Reed, I would be offended that she chose to lie about something so dumb. A few weeks ago, we talked about how journalist Walker Bragman blew the lid off of a scandal in the DNC where they are still funneling money that could be going to state parties to Hillary Clinton's super PAC, Onward Together. And now that the story has been picked up by The Intercept and published by Walker Bragman and Michael Sonato, well, state party leaders are pretty pissed off that Hillary Clinton is still getting all of this money and they're requesting a refund. So according to Daniel Marens of HuffPost, in February of 2017, the DNC agreed to pay Clinton's group Onward Together $1.65 million for her campaign email list, analytics, donor data, and related items, The Intercept reported on Wednesday. The cachet of material was worth more than $5 million. Clinton's campaign made an in-kind donation of resources worth $3.5 million, and the DNC paid for the rest. Now, a number of Democratic Party officials, including some state party chairs and DNC members, want. Clinton to retroactively donate the campaign materials, to the DNC and return the money that the party organ gave onward together. She should return the money for the love of the Democratic Party to the DNC for its use, said Alabama Democratic Party Chairwoman Nancy Worley, who supported Clinton during the 2016 primary. Wisconsin Democratic Party Chairwoman Martha Lanning and Missouri Democratic National Committee man Curtis Wilde likewise called on her to retroactively donate it and return the payment. And Nebraska Democratic Party Chairwoman Jane Klebe, who supported Senator Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primary, argued that Clinton could also contribute the equivalent money to state Democratic parties. Other DNC officials, including at-large member Brian Wabi and Kansas Democratic National Committee man Chris Reeves, welcomed an in-kind donation but stopped short of asking for it. It would be a Christian thing to do, Wabi said. Nick Merrill, a Clinton spokesman, defended the price tag on Thursday on the grounds that the DNC has already reaped far more than it paid for the email list and fundraising so far. Paying a rental fee for use of an email list is common practice, and in this case, the DNC has raised over $30 million with it. An 1,800% return on their investment, Merrill wrote in an email to Fox News, the DNC purchased the email list to own rather than renting its information. Zochino Hinojosa, a DNC spokeswoman, agreed that the DNC had gotten a return on our investment and more since obtaining all of the lists and data. James Zogby makes a phenomenal point about this. He states, Back just a few months ago, when they were trying to pressure Bernie Sanders to turn over his email list, they weren't asking to purchase his email list or rent his email list. They just wanted him to give up his email list. They were acting as if they were entitled to it and that Bernie Sanders was the bad guy for not handing it over willingly. But here, they're paying Hillary Clinton for this list. And If I'm not mistaken, they actually praised Hillary Clinton because she turned over her email list and they tried to vilify Bernie Sanders because he wouldn't. Meanwhile, come to find out, Hillary didn't just willingly turn over her email list. There was money involved. She made a lot of money. So there's this huge double standard going on where progressives are required to comply with any and everything that the DNC wants, but when it comes to Queen Hillary, yes, your highness, we're willing to pay you millions of dollars for this list, and really, we should be paying you to bottle up your farts and sell them to us so that way we can huff them on a daily basis because we love you so much. I mean, it's maddening. And another absurd angle to the story that we found out about is that it wasn't Tom Perez who actually initiated this agreement with Onward Together. Guess who it was? It was Donna Brazile. So she becomes the interim DNC chair in 2016. She finds out about this JFA, this joint fundraising agreement that she ended up blowing the lid off of and revealing to us all in 2017. And what does she do? One of the last things she did was sign this agreement so that way the DNC would be turning over more money to Hillary Clinton's campaign. And Donna Brazil is talking about how state parties were robbed and Hillary Clinton, you know, she, she just had so much control she couldn't even release a press release. And yet she still decided to sign this agreement with Hillary Clinton's super PAC, Donna. You do realize how bad this makes you look, right? You do realize that there will now be calls again for your resignation because you can't be trusted. Yes, I commend her for basically exposing this JFA that Debbie Wasserman Schultz signed with Hillary Clinton. But you go and sign another agreement with Hillary Clinton's super PACs, basically making sure Hillary Clinton is still financially connected to the DNC. I mean, what is wrong with you? Why would you do something like that, especially after complaining? That makes you a hypocrite, Donna. Why? I I, I don't get it. I don't get these people. They're not honest actors. I don't even understand what motivates them. It's irrational. She complained about Hillary Clinton's control over the DNC, and then before she leaves, she unilaterally signs another agreement with them. I mean, come on. And Tom Perez, he's the DNC chairman. Why not protest this? He's certainly changed, um, what I believe is the, um, the dates that they're paying Hillary Clinton. So I think he made it less frequent that they would be giving her the payments, from what I understand. Um, that's not clear to me, but I mean, he he's still, he's still paying for the list. And Hillary Clinton is robbing parties, and she knows firsthand that parties don't have funds. She talked about how the DNC was bankrupt. Come to find out she was the one who bankrupted it along with Obama, but She's still robbing the DNC for this list. Hillary Clinton's list is not worth that much money, yet they paid that much money for it anyway, not because they wanted it, but because they wanted to cultivate loyalty with Hillary Clinton still. Because Hillary Clinton, even though she's out of power, she still has a lot of sway and influence over Democratic Party politics. So, of course, they want to make sure that they're still greasing Hillary Clinton's palms, even if they know that this is going to hurt the party. (sighs) so i mean this party never ceases to amaze me the dnc is an organization that there should be 100 percent turnover fire every single person just start over fresh this agreement should not exist and the fact that this isn't another national scandal to the extent that i thought it would be it's mind-boggling to me hillary clinton has got to stop democrats have got to cut the cord from Hillary Clinton once and for all. This is hurting the party. This is hurting state parties. And if you truly care about a so-called blue wave in November, you need to make sure that Hillary Clinton has nothing to do with elections. Monetarily, publicly, she needs to be as far away from the Democratic Party as possible if you even want a chance. But again, this is the DNC we're talking about. Not only are they incompetent, but they are brazenly corrupt so why should we ever expect them to do the right thing or even the logical thing i'm here with jordan Sheridan, a journalist and founder of the new media outlet status coup and he is here to talk about what he's now doing and some of his investigative reporting concerning water stories that the mainstream press just isn't covering today that they should be covering so jordan i'm excited for you because you're launching a huge media Organization, tell us what that is.
7: Yeah, so it's definitely not launched yet, but I I released the name. Uh, I'm kind of in the grassroots uh, groveling stage to try to get funding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But where status quo is the name, Um, I kind of want to think we have a status quo in the country that is essentially, uh, you know, the media. Uh, The lobbyists, the banks, uh, the corporations, and it's all one big cabal, I would say. Uh, So, uh, you know, it's kind of a a journalistic coup d'etat, I guess you would say. I really want this uh, entity uh, eventually to really make corporate media obsolete because I think that's where we're headed. That corporate media kind of has their little sugar high now with the Trump ratings, but that's not going to last forever. So yeah, I'm in the um, funding stages. I, I've been back on YouTube for about two months, uh, youtube.com slash Jordan Chariton reports. Unfortunately, a lot of people weren't aware of that because as you've so greatly reported, uh, YouTube's doing some interesting things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been, I'm doing daily live streams. I'm doing podcasts for my Patreon uh, subscribers. So That's uh, patreon.com slash Jordan Sheridan reports, and really just kind of uh, basically doing from the grassroots up, like Bernie said, trying to get the funding, you know, to hire that first camera person to I want to hire other reporters too. this definitely can't just be me. So, uh, yeah, it's going to take more time than than I would like, but uh, it's going well so far I have between I have two patron patron channels, I have a 730 uh excuse me 750 paid subscribers have some people that have expressed interest as far as funding so uh for 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 how long i've been back which is two months i'm very encouraged
0: that's exciting and the first thing when i saw your logo and saw the name for this i thought man why didn't i think about that because that is such an awesome name status quo um so i wanna let me let me, let me
7: tell you how difficult it was to trademark a name i literally had i literally one of them That I wanted, I went down to an attorney's office and tried to muscle him to giving up his client's name because they weren't using it yet. And that didn't go well. But I'm happy. (laughs) I'm happy with this name. It's definitely what I want.
0: It's the perfect representation of um, what is needed in media. And I want to kind of ask you about the content because we kind of saw two types of reporting from you, um, both of which I think were great. We saw the reporting where you were on the ground in Flint, Michigan, you know, um, with the Standing Rock, rock tribe protesting the dakota access pipeline but we also saw a lot of political commentary from you on tyt politics so are we going to get kind of a mix of that or are you going to stick specifically to like on the ground reporting
7: uh, it's gonna be both i mean okay. I, you know I'm, I'm i'm 31 and definitely uh, feeling it i just had back surgery recently so i can't be wow. in the field 24 7 right That's part of why uh the real vision is to create a real network with other reporters. I have some people in mind. Um, But yeah, I'll be doing, I'll definitely be in the field. Uh, I'll be doing commentary. Uh, We want to do live events too. A lot of people, they may remember, but when I was at TYT, I did a town hall in Flint uh, last year just to kind of remind people that this was still a crisis and I'd like to do live events and other places where, you know, it might be a few bucks to get in and some of it goes to maybe a charity, some of it goes to us. Uh, we have a, a lot of ideas as far as revenue, but it's going to be definitely heavily tilted towards in the, in the field because I think it's. I think we need both. I think we need people like you and Jimmy and Kyle and Jamal and, you know, the entire growing progressive media space. But I also think there's a real, real hunger and demand for, peop- for reporters to get out there and actually like cover the non- Trump, Russia, media, industrial complex. So that's kind of where I'm going. Uh, a lot of in the field stuff and a lot of, uh, you know, commentary and reporting from you know where we live too.
0: Right. It's, it's the scandals, really, that don't get talked about that you're touching on because you actually um, you were talking about this a little bit in your interview with Jimmy Dore. But um, we learned recently that the governor of Michigan basically declared the Flint water-, water crisis over because the studies confirmed that there's no longer lead in the water. Now, you have evidence that they're cooking the books. Are you able to talk about that before it's published or give us any insight? Because I think that's a bombshell yeah. story.
7: And by the way, I could literally write a book on trying to get this published through corporate media. (laughs) I had the outlets that have said no, and frankly, some of them are are progressive. Uh, It's just incredible. I mean, obviously, if people don't think I have the story right, that's one thing. But there's been so many who just said, we don't have the bandwidth to read these 10 pages on Microsoft Word. And I'm like, yeah, but I have evidence that the science is cooked. You sure you can't read that? Or... I've had outlets say, like, can you connect it to Trump in some way? I'm like, no, this happened under Obama. I can't. But yeah, so basically, uh, I've been to Flint many times. Uh, You know, obviously, credit to TYT for sending me when I was there. And I always was hearing this one name, Mark Edwards. He's the first, uh, he's the scientist that first identified the lead crisis in Flint. So he did a two year study. It was predominantly funded by the EPA. And he, kept on finding and declaring an improving water situation in Flint. But when I was there on the ground, all I heard from residents was they're getting, they're still sick, they're they're still getting sicker and whatnot. So I actually did something radical. I actually read his report. Most corporate media, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, just kind of regurgitate what the EPA or or state agencies tell them. Uh, So I read his report and I realized that he was declaring Flint's water normal based on literally testing 17 homes to to declare it normal. When I say 17, he tested 138 homes, but he only looked at 17, uh, excuse me, he only looked at 34 to meet the EPA's lead and copper rule. And without getting two in the weeds, the, the EPA's lead and copper rule basically is the regulation that makes sure you're looking at homes connected to lead service lines. So he only looked at 34 homes, he didn't use licensed plumbers to even verify that they were homes connected to lead service lines. And he also based his whole study on a separate University of Michigan Flint study. They did a mapping study of where the lead service lines were all over Flint. I literally have the the person who did that mapping study on the record telling me it's very flawed. And he based his. So basically, I'm my report. It's not just him. I look at the state testing because Edwards was funded by the EPA. The state of Michigan, Department of Environmental Quality, they didn't use licensed plumbers either. And they decided where to what homes to test. And they happened to be in the zip codes that weren't the worst affected. So essentially, there's a lot of selective science and kind of cherry pick numbers to feed the EPA what they want to basically feed Governor Snyder what he wants to say, problem solved, let's move on. So they don't have to pay the real amount they need to pay to change all the lead service lines. Not just that, but they have to fix the interior plumbing in the homes. And the problem is, Mike, this isn't a sexy topic, right?
3: Mm-hmm. It's not going to
7: get a thousand, you know, a bazillion clicks on YouTube. But it could save lives. So I kind of cater more towards doing that. Uh, but you know, I won't name the outlets yet. There's been a lot of outlets that either wouldn't read it. I mean, I got Aaron Brockovich on the record. I got water experts on the record. I got plumbers on the record. I got residents on the record. It's not like my opinion. So that's the story I, 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 I've held back from self-publishing it only because I want it. I want, you know, the the people that uh, I'm investigating in it, they could just say, Oh, you know, this, this Bernie bro uh, with his made up science. So I'm trying to get it. And a publication that, you know, gives it a little bit more credibility. So I'm working on it. And I also currently am talking to one politician who I might be able to get on the record in the story.
0: That's great. If you can get it published, that would be amazing and i like i kind of understand the logic behind them being apprehensive one because it's not a sensationalist story you know there's there's not going to be a grabbing headline i mean i think it's grabbing to people like you and me who actually give a damn but i mean like it's nothing about trump nothing about stormy daniels nothing about russia but what you're doing is you're kind of dissecting a study because these studies they kind of lend credibility and legitimacy to claims made by the government but nobody really gets in there and dissects these studies and ask these questions that you're asking you know is the sample size large enough you know um are the methods that they used going to give us an accurate conclusion so it's interesting to me that nobody wants to talk about this and one thing that i also find not just that the mainstream media is kind of backing off of flint not that they really gave it the amount of time it needed to begin with but i notice now that Um, There's no presidential election. Politicians aren't really talking about it very frequently. Democrats aren't talking about it specifically who claim to care. So I find it really interesting that we all just kind of moved on from Flint. Meanwhile, the residents there, they still have to deal with this. I mean, I saw the uh, video that you posted to Twitter of someone with their water that was still yellow. How can you declare the water crisis over if the water is still yellow, it makes no sense. So here's one thing that I want to ask you, and you may not have the answer to this specifically, but do you think that there will be justice in terms of criminal charges being brought to anyone um, in Michigan? I mean, I'd love to see Rick Schneider, you know, <laughs> in prison, but I doubt that we're ever going to see consequences like that. So do you see any hope for justice in, in any way, sh- shape or form? Well, first
7: off, I want to make clear. My story also shows that it's not just Flint. This cherry pick testing is being used in other places, and the scientists that I point out in this piece literally just got a $600,000 grant from Housing and Urban Development to do similar testing. Uh, he's perjured himself, which most people don't realize. He perjured himself in front of Congress. Uh, somebody testified, uh, a state official testified that He actually told Snyder months earlier that there was a legionella uh, concern in Flint. Snyder says he was told in January 2016. Basically, Snyder lied. I mean, he was told months earlier, but he perjured himself in front of Congress. Literally nothing's been done. Um, I think that, you know, I don't want to shamelessly plug myself. I really think the missing ingredient is aggressive journalism. Like, you (laughs) need journalists to expose this stuff. You need journalists on the ground. To expose this stuff because the new york times doesn't care you want to know how much they care about flint literally april 25th two days ago was the four-year anniversary of this disastrous water switch i didn't see anything on cnn or msnbc so uh there are some uh of snyder's cabinet that are on trial now for involuntary manslaughter possibly uh they might it's in the pre-trial stages so Mm. whether they should go to trial so it's possible that they will but I'm not holding my breath on Snyder.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, he's the big dog that we're all kind of looking at, um, who really is responsible. If you want to say indirectly, that's fine too, but he's certainly culpable here. Um, I wanted to ask you also about the Dakota Access Pipeline, because I know water has kind of been your specialty here. Do you have any updates with regard to Dapple? I mean, we already know that what they've built thus far, and with I don't know if it's fully operational yet, but we know that there's been some leaks. Um, is that pretty much just a foregone conclusion at this point? That's
7: interesting. I'm, I'm interviewing the new chairman of Standing Rock, Mike Faith, uh, next week. But yeah, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, I always say spilled five times that we know of. Mm-hmm. Because North Dakota's uh, spill uh, reporting system is a joke. Uh, essentially, the Dakota Access Pipeline isn't, or Energy Transfer Partners is not going to report if they have an oil spill. It's only if residents see it. Uh, in Texas and North Dakota, it's, it's laughable, their regulations for reporting spills. But uh, actually, uh, last week, there was a lot of activists and talk online that there might have been a spill on the reservation. I held back from reporting on it because I'm not there and I didn't have confirmation. So I kind of waited. You know, Thankfully, there wasn't a spill. But basically, there is still uh, the court process. Uh, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe sued uh, last year Army Corps uh, and Energy Transfer Partners, the parent company. The judge has kind of kicked the can continually down the road, uh, as saying they need he needs more from the tribe. There was a victory last year because the job, judge did say the Army Corps acted illegally in not taking into environmental justice concerns and demanded that the Army Corps, in in concert with energy transfer partners, um, provide a more thorough, um, not only an environmental uh, assessment, but a spill, an oil spill response plan. So Energy Transfer Partners from, from my sources of the tribe has kind of been dragging their feet. They provided the tribe with information that's heavily redacted. So we don't even know what the, the what their oil spill response plan is. Um, it's kind of a pipe Bad, bad phrasing. It's a pipe dream, though, uh, that the pipeline would actually get stopped. If you if you know of a federal judge in history that's taken a big oil project out of the ground, uh, I'd love to know. But I do think that uh, there is there is hope as far as forcing uh, energy transfer partners to come up with an actual oil spill response, um, making concessions as far as they need to beef up the money towards that oil spill response, um, but it, it's, it's totally shocking. And we just saw uh, Energy Transfer Partner, by the way, they've had so many spills that other pipelines like in the last six months, Rover pipeline going through Ohio has spilled like between 20 and 30 times before it's even up and running. Um, you know, you've had uh, down at the Bayou Bridge, uh, they had uh, issues down there, that pipeline. Uh, they, now you've seen, it's not Energy Transfer Partners, but you just saw this Wisconsin oil refinery exploded no coverage on cnn or anywhere really um so you know uh there's a lot to talk about with standing rock and there's there's still uh battles to come i mean you got line three going through minnesota you have keystone uh it just came out that the report the spill that they reported uh, last year i believe it was was double the amount so um yeah that's one of the things with my company we are going to be hopefully covering the next standing rock before it's too late you know before the decisions are made. So uh, that's what's going on with uh, DAPL.
0: Right. I, I'm interested to learn more as well about the corruption angle because I don't think that the media, well, not that they report on DAPL at all, but I mean, this the fact that the CEO and executives of Energy Transfer Partners donated to Trump's campaign, and one of the first things he did was sign an executive order that basically... Um, expedited the construction process and gave them permission to build on uh, i guess native american land and whatnot i think that's a gigantic scandal so i don't i don't see how if they want to hammer trump there's something right there but i mean i just on my show a couple days ago i talked about how msnbc and cnn they both had segments about trump's misspellings on twitter it's like (laughs) How do you not talk about the real scandals in this country, but you focus on that? So, by the, by the way, it's
7: not just Trump. So a lot of, you know, some people get a little testy when I use the word fascism on Twitter, but you literally have energy transfer partners paying North Dakota legal enforcement $15 million for the North, for the Standing Rock protests. You have energy transfer partners just paid $5 million to Bismarck University. Uh, the capital of North Dakota, that university. What do you call that? When a, when a publicly funded police department works overtime to beat the living daylight out of Native Americans and environmental activists, 99% unarmed, uh, in protection of an oil company, and then the oil company pays for their costs. I mean, I wouldn't call that democracy. So that's what's happening. But you know, the progressive network, MSNBC is too busy, whatever, you know, Trump had Russian salad dressing. And CNN is, I I don't, I mean, I keep it on just to have fodder to go at them on Twitter, but it's, 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 we're in bad shape when it comes to people being informed uh, and and people, you know, you can't, viewers and and Americans can't become active against something if they don't know what's going on. And I think that's what's going on.
0: Yeah. And I don't understand. As you tell me this, all I could think about is how much this sounds like the fucking mafia. How is that not interesting? How is that not something that they would want to cover where you don't know if cops are compromised? You know, who's a dirty cop? Who's in bed with energy transfer? It's just it it blows my mind, honestly. And I think that this really is part of the media's problem. As you said, you know, if people don't know what's happening then how are they going to get outraged about it which kind of brings it to the topic of your book your book is called corporate con job i know you're releasing it chapter by chapter which is really smart because i've been working on a book but it hasn't come out because i've been lazy as fuck but Mm. i think that your model is actually pretty interesting so tell us about your book and how many chapters you've released thus far because i think that is a really smart way to do it if you're lazy like me and you don't want to do it all at once yeah and
7: uh, speaking of standing rock i just released chapter seven which is all about my time at standing rock so uh that people could get it's i don't want to complicate things but just think about it this way there's two patreons one is for the book one is for my daily reporting the book is patreon.com jordan chariton the the reporting it just add reports at the end um jordan chariton reports is the patreon for my reporting but basically i uh wanted to write kind of a mix of my experience on the campaign trail with my experience working in corporate media. So kind of like half a behind the scenes, what actually, what I saw on the campaign trail, what I experienced in Flint and Standing Rock. I'm actually releasing chapter eight in a few days, which was all about my, I don't even know, harrowing experience interviewing Hillary Clinton voters the night of, that election. Um, that was quite an experience. But yeah, I, I, I kind of like, I would say, blow up and, and drop the curtain on the corrupt corporate media. Uh, one chapter is all about how the media really destroyed Bernie's chances from the get-go. Uh, chapter two, I'm kind of most proud of, which is kind of my explanation of what really created Donald Trump. It's not Putin. It was actually something Bill Clinton did in the 90s, deregulating the entire media industry which helped create, like, the rolling escalator, you know, and the, the reality show. I write about covering Hillary's campaign. Uh, one chapter is all about, like, something that got no coverage, uh, the election fraud. You know, Lee Camp and, and some of us did it, but very little in corporate media. And then I got into um, standing in two chapters Chicago. And it's really just – I, I kind of try to be as personal as I can, but also – explaining a lot of things through like here, here's why i know how they do it because i worked at msnbc i have for two dark years of my life i worked at fox news so it's kind of a mix of both and really like straight up the the, the funding for for both of my patreons is going i need to hire a camera person first and like right. get a little bit of a travel budget so uh, all of that is going so i could launch this company
0: For sure. Now, um, before we go, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the gigantic elephant in the room because there's a lot that people probably are curious about, myself included, about because you did work for TYT, you're no longer with them. I don't know how much you can and can't talk about. I know there are also accusations lobbed against you. If you want to speak to any of the controversies, then you know, feel free.
7: Uh yeah. I mean, I addressed it like on my YouTube channel when I when I came out of Hibernation. Uh I mean, there's no other way to say it. There was obviously the worst thing that you could be accused of as a man (laughs) was aimed my way um it's it's just it was not true um that's why i kind of at the time i came out first to explain what happened because i I didn't have anything to hide it sucks that you know unfortunately there's always going to be like people who think that Uh, you know as somebody who i mean i was i was raised by a pretty overbearing jewish mother who said you know treat women right and hold the door open and all that so like i'm certainly not perfect but i would never ever um violate a woman. That's just not who I am. But, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, that's what happened. I got accused of that. It's not true. Um, thankfully, months later, the majority of people, it seems, know that's not true. Um, and yeah, obviously, it was a it was a tough time. Um, you know, I can't, I wish I could get into it. Uh, as far as TYT, my hands are kind of tied um, to get into it for legal reasons. But um, yeah, TYT, you know, made their decision. I obviously... I didn't agree with it, but it's, it's Jenks' company, and he could do what he wants. Um, I thanked them for like the opportunity I had, uh, because you know, uh, definitely I, I have my feelings on on their coverage and things like that. But they did, you know, there would be no me at Standing Rock and Flint and all these places without resources, which I had at 2IT And um, yeah, I, it's uh, you know, uh, to be honest with you, it was in my mindset eventually to go out on my own. I think that for all the good tyt does i don't particularly think um you know they're just it wasn't really a priority for them to feature the kind of work that is my passion you know the flints it was it was always kind of a struggle to get those kind of stories like on the main show and things like that um so it was my vision to eventually leave obviously i would have preferred to do it uh, on better terms but um yeah you know like I, i still have people there that i talk to and i wish them well and Life short, so I'm not really, you know, interested in, like, bashing TYT.
0: Right, right. Absolutely, and I respect that. Yeah, thank you for disclosing that, because I knew that people would would be curious about that, just with the return and whatnot. But we're glad to have you back. Uh, definitely excited about Status Quo and how that's going to go. Um, definitely come back on the show when it launches and talk to us about it. Uh, yeah, we're excited to see that. So um, can you, before we leave, one more time, plug your Twitter and um, all the links that we can find um, you or... Find info about Status Quo and whatnot. Yeah, sure.
7: So uh, at Jordan Charendin on Twitter, um, my my YouTube is uh, YouTube.com/slash Jordan Reports. I'm I'm live every day, uh, give or take like four or five Eastern time. Uh, people aren't getting notified that I'm live, and apparently subscribers are being unsubscribed. You know, you know this all too well. So
0: yeah, you
7: got to do your homework. <laughs>
0: you got to make sure
7: you pay attention uh, to people's channels. Um, so I'm going live every day, you know, a mix of original reporting and commentary. And yeah, I mean, I'm not very good at asking for money. So, um, you know, everybody has a choice, you know, you could fund whatever outlet you want. If it's not going to be me, I hope it's Mike or or Lee or whoever, uh, as far as for me, you know, I just want to be very clear. There were things put out there. Uh, I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but there were things put out there about me and money and all this stuff. Which uh, to this day, I just kind of laugh at because it's not true. (laughs) I'm a pretty frugal person. I don't spend money lavishly. So I want people to know the funding uh, that's going to be coming through my Patreon is not, I'm not going out to dinners with it. This is all going actually not only to start the company, but I'm trying to get as much funding as possible in those Patreons to then go to potential investors and say, hey, I've already got you know, X amount of Patreon subscribers. I've already got this month mon- monthly revenue, and that's before I've even been in the field. I do have some people interested in funding, but obviously the better numbers, the, big, the, the larger the numbers get, uh, the better. Uh, obviously, I'm not looking for, um, shall I say, Democratic Party Funding or any funding from those sources, definitely more, uh, progressives. And one, I'm talking to one person who's a, you know, a small business owner and my reporting it's, it's patreoncom slash Jordan Chariton reports. And yeah, I can't thank you enough. It's, it's fun to, I spoke with Jimmy and I'm speaking with you. It's nice to, uh, kind of get back out there and I will definitely, definitely let you know when this Flint piece is
0: out. Yeah, definitely. Uh, because we're all looking forward to that. So yeah, thank you so much. We definitely look forward to seeing the launch of status quo. Cool. Thanks man. Well, that's all I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the program, big thanks to my guest, Jordan Sheridan. Thank you all so much for watching. So if you'd like more of the Humanist Report podcast, you can visit humanistreport.com and check us out also now on Twitch. I think we've got approximately one viewer there but you know what you've got to start from somewhere so (laughs) we'll start there so thank you all so much and i want to send a special shout out to all of our patreon and paypal contributors for helping the show to survive at a time when the suppression of independent media is a huge issue for shows like mine so thank you all so much for helping us to survive uh i will see you all next week take care